very good morning to you. Welcome in uh, to today's uh, programme. We're with you right through until 12 midday. Now, yet to come on the programme, by the way, um, we have Galway Greats, and today it is Sister Agnes Curley. And uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece. It's a beautiful story. And uh, she's a wonderful ambassador for everything that she embodies, I have to say. Some of the comments coming in, I told you I would give you those in, in a moment's time, which I will. And um, why are they supporting the banks so much? Each of the banks will make €1 million Euro profit a year. Another caller said, well done to Michael Fitzmaurice, just like Michael Collins of West Cork. He sent people on buses up north uh, to get hip replacements, etc. Another caller said, Michael Fitzmaurice, 100% correct. I can be in Limerick quicker than I can be in Galway. And I'm only 30 minutes out the road. And uh, other calls, that comes from Anne and lots of other calls coming in there too. Now though, I want to go indeed to Eve McDowell. And there's a poignant documentary revealing the devastation impact of stalking uh, through the deeply personal stories of three individuals, including a former University of Galway student, Eve McDowell. And uh, you can catch the once-off documentary, Stalked, uh, tonight indeed at 9pm on Virgin Media 1 and the Virgin Media Player as well. And again, if you go back to it, it really is a groundbreaking documentary and it airs tonight, as we said, at 9pm. Um, but again, I caught up with Eve McDowell last Friday afternoon indeed uh, to speak with her about uh, this and uh, she joined me uh, and we, we spoke about this whole situation. Yeah, well, when I was being stalked myself, I just made an inquiry about um, getting a training order and I was essentially laughed at and told that restraining orders are something from American TV shows and movies and that stalking wasn't a crime in Ireland, um, which was, I, I was just shocked at that. But, you know, I, I ended up going through my case and I went to court and everything and had a year in and out of court and going through the court system. And I was quite determined to leave it behind me at that stage. And when you come out of something like that, you don't really want to think of it again. You're just like, oh, OK, it's over now. And then I heard Una Ring's story on Clare Byrne one, um, one day and I just couldn't believe that there was someone else in Ireland that had had a similar experience. So I wanted to get in contact with her. So luckily I was able to get, get her contact details and we spoke and we just couldn't believe that there was no law, first of all, and second of all, that there was no even website with information or details for people uh, and no support services. And uh, at that stage, I had had requests for interviews, but uh, I had just denied them because if you've been stalked, the last thing you want really is a load of people who don't know you to also see you. So um, that's you're, you're kind of ca caught between a rock and a hard place there. But when we got talking, we just said, look, something needs to change. Maybe if we speak out about our experiences, uh, then people might learn from them. And maybe maybe someday uh, there might be push to introduce a law, but at that stage, you know, it was something we didn't think that was possible. Uh, neither of us had any experience with the law. So, um, yeah, we just started telling our story. We did every radio show, every newspaper article, uh, every TV interview that was offered to us just to raise more and more awareness. And the more we did, the more people that reached out to us. So the more we uncovered um, this is a problem, but there was no Irish statistics either. So. Mm. We contacted UCC about the possibility of doing a research project to see, you know, what people's experiences actually are in Ireland. And we just couldn't believe over half of people that did the survey didn't even report their cases to the guards. Um, and coming out on top was like a, a lack of trust in the guards or a fear of not being believed. 
which was so disappointing to find out. But yeah. we were glad that we had uncovered it. And then obviously if there's no law, then there's no data that the guards can capture. So the prevalence of this problem was just falling through the cracks uh, and people were left on their own to deal with it. And then lucky enough, um, Senator Lisa Chambers contacted us and uh, she had been a barrister and, you know, studied law and she had said that she didn't even realise that there was no standalone stalking offence and she was appalled by it and she was determined to help us. So for a number of months, we worked with her and two professors from UCC on drafting a bill. I had no interest or um, knowledge on how to draft legislation or what legislation looked like, didn't understand the jargon, but... Myself and Una really threw ourselves into it as well and looked at different laws in different countries and spoke to different people from different countries, from organisations that deal with stalking and why their laws might have let them down or what the gaps were. So uh, we just worked really hard to to build something and mm. that made it halfway through the legislative process and then still had no support from the Department of Justice. But then eventually they came around um and they decided they were going to bring their own bill forward, which we were hesitant to at first because we were like, oh, we're halfway there. But when they brought us up to meet with them, they explained that ours had a few gaps that we didn't identify mm. and that their uh, bill would include the provision for protection orders, uh, even if there was no guilty verdict yet, so that it could help people get that protection that they need and they could apply through the guards for those if they needed them Um so we just felt that that was really important. But the man in question got jailed. Um, he's now out, so he's an out and about. But do you feel that the legacy from the horrible time that you had going through this and fighting in the courts and otherwise, do you think the legacy there is that you and your colleague fought for this and you're making the country safer for those that may be stalked in the future? Yeah, that's what we really hope. Like that's been our motivation the whole time. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's such a nuanced problem and the behaviours aren't it's not as simple as other crimes because it's not like tick box exercises of um things that you can say oh yeah there's that that and that so that means it's that it's more of a pattern of behaviours so it's harder to identify but we're hoping that even the documentary gives people a better understanding of how stalking can look how different it can look for different people and the impact that it has on people and hopefully as well make people aware of the new law because, uh, you know, I still talk to people that didn't realise that it's passed. So we could really do with a national campaign yeah. on that. But I think this is a great, a great start. And just go back to 2019. This was well before COVID, so as well, just before COVID as well. I mean, you must be a very strong person to have um, survived the 17-day period in May 2019. And what got you through that? Was it family? Was it friends? Um, well, it was actually a lot longer than 17 days. The, the no, courts, yeah, yeah, no, no, that's what the courts will say. But this was going on for up to a year, yeah. um, and gradually. But because I hadn't documented a lot of it and because I was so unsure myself, um, you know, it, it really got condensed in the in the court proceedings, which is another thing that I wanted to highlight in the documentary. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's still something that I'm going through. It's it's not like I'm fixed now and everything's better and no, no. hunky-dory. It's Can't like be. you're constantly working on it, you know, in therapy all the time still, which is a big financial impact sometimes. But, um, you know, that's something that's unfair. I think in these cases, perpetrators get offered free therapy and prison services, whereas victims are left to pay for it themselves a lot of the time. Um, 
and yeah, having having a good support system with even my sisters and um, I suppose Una has been the main the main rock in all of this. Um, just you know, having someone to discuss things with that you'd be scared to say to other people in case they think you're mad in the head, you know. But um, they're they're all just psychological impacts of of what happens yeah. when you experience something like that. What are you hoping to get out once once this gets into the open air? Are you hoping to to help other people? Are you hoping that the legislators may take this more seriously? Um, the Gardaí take it more seriously because you didn't have the support going along there. Um, what what would the end game be for you finally, just in relation to once this airs? I think for me, it's awareness that the law is there, uh, helping people to identify their behaviours, and the main thing for me is Garda training. I think there's such a lack of Gardaí at the moment and um, they're really, really trying to get Gardaí on the streets, which is so important. It's obviously needed, but I just think that the training is so important as well, that they have an awareness of this, they know what it is, that it's not just an hour-long module that they sit through in Templemore, that they have extensive training and case studies on the different ways Mm. it can look and how to look for that pattern and even just knowing to how to receive disclosures of not just stalking but sexual violence and be more aware and sensitive to people that are coming forward because going to make a report to the Gardaí is such a daunting experience. And, mm. you know, if you look at Una's case, she had a fantastic experience with the Gardaí, which shows that it's possible. Um, so I think just more supports for the Gardaí so that they feel confident in being able to receive disclosures and put cases to the DPP. Well, for years, uh, finally, I mean, domestic violence wasn't held, wasn't dealt with properly by the guards, you call it. They're now fully trained in that. So, I mean, stalking mm-hmm. is something perhaps that should be on that curriculum and they should all be uh, trained in it so that somebody doesn't have to go the lonely journey that you've been on or were left on mm-hmm. on your own for a while. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. There you go, Eve McDowell there joining us and again that uh, documentary is going out tonight on Virgin Media uh, 1 at 9pm uh, tonight for the details on that and it's um, quite a staggering story I have to say that uh, she has to tell there and you can just, you can, you can actually sense it. Uh, it was on a Teams call on Friday, that was Friday evening that I spoke to her at uh, 3 o'clock-ish um, just after 3 but you can actually see that it's taken its toll on her and you could see the emotion in it and it's just dreadful that you had to go through it. Anyway, let me move on today because I've been contacted indeed by Councillor Shane Curley uh, over the uh, weekend and he's very concerned about illegal dumping in the Lockray area but he has some good news for us as well in relation to what can happen next. Uh, Shane, good morning to you and uh, thanks to you for joining us. Yeah, well Keith, um, just it's, it's good news really in a way is that basically for the last number of years We've had a serious problem with dumping in rural areas and in towns across Galway and across the whole country, really. And for a long time, we couldn't use CCTV to prosecute anyone who was caught dumping. Um, Even though we might have had the footage, it could not be used in court under GDPR legislation. So thankfully, on Friday, we finally got news from Senator Malcolm Byrne that that has changed. Uh, The minister has now finalised the legislation. So people can now be prosecuted with CCTV footage of dumping if they're carrying it out in rural areas or in towns, wherever it's happening. And, you know, there's black spots across the Lockray area and further afield across the whole county that are, you know, they're, they're a long time suffering from people knowing that this legislation couldn't be used or could, could be used against people to 
to stop them prosecuting them if they were they they were dumping illegally. So it's just good news now that this is one way we can try and reduce the amount of dumping that's happening around the place. But, uh, not- but is there adequate amount of um, CCTV cameras out there um, where they're needed, um, and can can more be put into places that are black spots so that these people can be brought to justice eventually? Exactly, Keith. That that's exactly it. So that there, there aren't is the is the answer to that question in the sense that a lot of black spots have developed over the years that may not have been used in the past, and people are quite clever about what they'll do. Um, what you can do is you can install cam- cameras temporarily in an area that has become a black spot, and then move them around. Which is the the beauty of modern technology is that they're they're now mobile and can be moved around. So that's going to help massively. It's not going to eliminate it, Keith. It's only one, you know, one prong in the approach. Uh, another thing we did as councillors a couple of years ago is that we brought in a bylaw that allows the community wardens to knock door to door and make sure that people have proof of adequate waste disposal in a legal way and that they're not dumping illegally. They can prove that they either have bin collection or they're going to an amenity centre. So between the two of those, we should make it an awful lot harder now for people to dump illegally, which should help in rural areas. And we've, 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 we have beautiful countryside, Keith. We need to keep it that way so that we attract tourists into the area. And even if you look at the towns like Lockray, there are areas that have been black spots for quite a while that have had the CCTV in place on light poles around the place, but they couldn't be used, you know? Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you, in relation to people coming across people dumping, and if they video them themselves, can that be admitted in court, or does it have to be council CCTV to catch the people in question? Um, to my knowledge, that could always be used, Keith. It's just that the, the images couldn't be used in court. But pe- pe- people were never actually technically breaking the law by recording someone illegally dumping. So if they used dash cam footage or that kind of stuff, apparently it could always be used in the past, was my my um, my understanding from Senator Malcolm Byrne. So I don't think that has changed. So that if somebody comes across somebody in the act of dumping or fly-tipping and yeah. or otherwise, if they, if they record that... And who do they give it to then? Is it the Gardaí or the council? Well, it could be either or, I suppose, Keith. Um, it'll be brought to the right place anyway. But uh, as far as I know, it's not illegal to record someone in a public place illegal dumping. So that, that can be that, that can be used, yeah. So the clear message going out this morning from you, Councillor Shane Curley, is uh, that Big Brother can be or could be watching you. That doesn't mean they're going to stop illegal dumping, though doesn't mean they're going to stop it, but it can definitely be used as a clever tool. I mean, if we can identify a current black spot, whether it's in a countryside area or in a town, and just install a CCTV camera for a while and bring a few people to justice, that should deter any future dumping. And if it returns, you can always go back to that place with a camera and monitor it because certain places are constantly just absolutely destroyed. There's a rural area just up the road from me here, Keith, mm. just outside Loch Ray, and it's regularly used with you know, three or four black bags just thrown into a ditch on the side of the road every couple of months. And it's just, it's an eyesore and people are fed up of it. And now we've got another way of trying to reduce it anyway. And how quickly can they be brought to justice, can I ask you? I don't know whether, like, this is a new process, Keith. So from that point of view, the actual complete um, semantics of the logistics, I don't 100% know. I'd be lying to you if I said I actually knew that because this is new. Uh, This has been something we couldn't do for a long, long time because of GDPR. So it's a new legal process. So that, that, that has to be seen as it has a place out, you know.
Well, you've been warned at this stage, so you have, uh, from uh, Councillor Shane Curley indeed there, uh, that uh, if CCTV is in operation, that you can be um, prosecuted. And I really hope that it, it cleans up our countryside because I came across other people dumping bags as well. And this flight tipping crack is just, just not good enough, really and truly. Uh, very good morning to you. Welcome on into today's uh, programme. The disappeared, uh, forced disappearances in Ireland, 1798 to 1998. Uh, a book has been written specifically about the Galway disappeared. And the author is Porik uh, O'Gorourke, and he joins me on the line today. And I'm fascinated with this history, I have to say, uh, going back uh, through childhood as well. Porik, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, today on the uh, programme. It's a very interesting, very interesting and a very delicate time and a very sad time for a lot of people, 1798 to 1998. Well, I suppose it's the story of how modern Ireland was created, um, Irish independence, why there's two parts of the island, all that is wrapped up, 1798, War of Independence, Civil War, which is all covered in the book. And the disappeared is still something that, that gets talked about quite a lot. And what we mean by that is people who were essentially executed in secret and, and buried for political purposes. And um, normally when we talk about it, it comes up in modern Irish politics. Let's say if there's a general election coming up, people like Mary Lou MacDonald will be asked questions about, you know, what about Jean McConville? What about the disappeared? Are, are Sinn Féin suitable for government? And so on. But what we often forget is that... Um, there were actually far more people, five times more people were disappeared by the so-called good old IRA back in the, the War of Independence uh, period um, than were disappeared by the provisionals in more recent times up yeah. north. And um, quite a number of those those disappeared actually occurred in, um, in, in, in Galway. But an interesting thing about the Galway factor is that, and we rarely mention this, the British Crown Forces, be it in the... 1798 rebellion in the Irish War of Independence or in the recent troubles up north, the British were disappearing people as well. Yeah. I, I grew up, as I said to you, because I grew up um, with my... Sorry, I grew up with my own family, but my mother uh, was based um, in the Mycullen region, so she was. And her father, which would be my grandfather, was... Um, was involved in the old IRA at the time, as were an awful lot of other people. And I had a grand-aunt who reared my mother, who used to tell us as, as children stories, because my grandfather was well dead before I was born uh, in 62. Um, but my grand-aunt grand used to tell us all the stories about what happened, but sure, I was too young to take it all in. Yeah, and that's, that's often the way about it. And um, you know, sometimes as well, people didn't want to talk about these things because there was a lot of a lot of trauma um, uh, about it. And but when we think of the disappeared, we often again tend to think of like the North in the nineteen seventies, and we th- tend to think of stuff happening in Belfast or maybe around the border. But I mean, if you look at Galway City, if you look at Connemara, this stuff is very local. To um, the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998, mm. and the first body dug up after that um, that was discovered of somebody who had been executed was nothing to do with the conflict in the North. It was a guy called um, Patrick Joyce. That's and nice. Joyce was actually a school teacher um, in Connemara. And often when I talk about the War of Independence, I talk about people being alleged spies or alleged informers because yeah, yeah. it's very difficult for us even as historians a hundred years later to know in the case of Patrick Joyce we can definitely say he was an informer because the letters that he wrote 
in his own handwriting to the, the British Crown Forces and the RIC and the Black and Tans actually survive. And he was giving information to them about the IRA, but he was also um, giving information claiming the people were in the IRA who had nothing to do with politics but were neighbours of his he was rowing with. Mm. And the, the IRA discovered these letters, he was taken away and he was uh, he was uh, executed. His body was buried in secret and it lay there until um, 1998. This would have happened in, in, ni- in 1920. So for, you know... 78 uh, years he was... For years. His, yeah. yeah, for years his body was, 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 was hidden there. And um, it was dug up and... Uh, uh, by accident, it was kind of discovered. And even it's amazing what they found on his body. They found his silver pocket watch with his initials engraved on it. They found his glasses. They found um, sticks of chalk in his pocket. The clothing and everything had rot- rotted away, but the chalk, of course, he was a school teacher, were still in the pocket. Wow. Now, the, this actually leads on to, uh, and another thing I should say is that the money he was carrying was actually in his pocket as well. So his executioners killed him, but they didn't rob him. They didn't take his pocket watch or his, his money. Uh, but this led on to... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, yep. sorry, I don't mean to cut across you, Porik, but I'm just going, I'm going back. I'm going back a long time in my head now. Was he something to do with the Father Griffin's um, murder as well? Exactly. That's that's what yeah. I was coming on to. Um, obviously, Joyce had been a very valuable intelligence agent for the British in, 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 in Galway. And they decided to take their revenge, and they took their revenge on a person who needs little introduction in Galway, Father Michael Griffin, who, you know, was very much a supporter of, of Sinn Féin, and um, he was also the Sinn Féin of that time, I should say, uh, a bit different to the Sinn Féin of today. And um, he was also a very active Irish language um, activist. And he was abducted um, from his home in Galway by, um, I think it's D Company of the... RIC's Auxiliary Division, or Diogsies, as they're often better known. These were like an elite black and tan officer corps. And they actually took his body out, or took him out towards the the, the Furbo area, and um, they executed him there and buried his his body. Now, the unusual thing about the the shooting of of Joyce is, or sorry, uh, about the shooting of Griffin, is that his body was recovered shortly afterwards. Local people went went searching, went looking for it. And people knew what had happened. Um, it was a shallow grave. There was there was the daughter of a local um, RIC constable who was sympathetic towards the IRA actually heard the black and tans and the auxiliaries laughing, saying the padre is in the bog. So they knew roughly what had happened to him. And it was clear from the very beginning, the British, of course, whitewashed this and said, oh, we, we have no idea who killed these, this man. And even people stood up in the House of Commons and said it was his own parishioners killed him. Ridiculous stuff. They tried mm-hmm. to cover it up. But um, what what happened was that the um, uh, the the body was 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 recovered anyway, and there was an inquest held later. But in fairness, a, a Church of Ireland rector actually stood up at the inquest and said, "Look, I was walking past Father Griffin's house that night. I was dressed um, as a clergyman. They stopped me, thinking I was Father Griffin. These men all had English accents, and one of them came forward and said, "No, no, no, we know him. He's all right." Now, this Church of Ireland clergyman was actually ministering to the British Crown forces in, in Galway, so that's how they knew him. Yeah. So it's very clear who the, the killers were. But sadly, the, the disappearances didn't didn't end there. No, and it's it's a, again, it's alleged, but I can go back to childhood here, that um, my grandfather that I refer to, James Thornton, he was heavily involved, and his sister, who would be Rita Nolan, 
and uh, she'd have been Rita Thornton at the time as well. But it's alleged then that they, in an assing cart, our assing cart or their assing cart, actually brought him in to, went, collected him, um, covered him with turf and brought him into St. Joseph's where he was laid out on the table. And that, that table where Father Griffin was laid out is still in Father Downey's front room. The table is still there. Wow, that's fascinating. And again, that's, that these details are great. Like the information about hiding the body in turf is, is fascinating. But I suppose if the British had encountered them coming in to Galway with the body, yeah. what would have happened to them? They'd have been taken away and the same thing would have been done. I, I know he's, And this, this he, happens as well, not yeah. just... Yep. No, no, but I... I was going to say, this, this isn't just... Go on. Fire ahead, no. You fire ahead, there's just a slight delay there, Paul. Fire ahead. No, I was going to say, this... this this happens in, in, in various parts of Galway. It's not just limited um, to the city. There is one other case in the city that's kind of unrelated to, to Joyce and Griffin. That's um, uh, a Sinn Féin councillor, Michael Walsh, who ran a, a right. public house in the shop. In Old the house, yeah. And, um, yeah, and uh, basically the um, uh, the British Crown Forces, now it's unclear were they British Army or Black and Tans, I suspect it was the same group, D Company of the, the auxiliaries, who basically came in and, and raided his shop and, and robbed him a number of times and threatened right. him. And on the final occasion, they, they came back, you know, they'd been smashing up his windows, they'd been stealing cigarettes, helping themselves to free drink. They said they were taking him away. And he asked his bar assistant, will you pour me a, a strong whiskey? And they said to him, don't waste it, you'll be dead in three minutes. And even the bar assistant, like, they were wondering whether to take him and they put a gun to his head and said, if you promise to be loyal to the king, we'll let you live. Wow. And um, uh, Councillor Walsh was taken away and he was shot through the head. And their way of getting rid of the body in the middle of, of you know, Galway City, obviously they couldn't go digging down around the Spanish Arch. What they did was they threw his body into the clara and they were hoping that it would be washed out to sea. Yeah. And, you know, once a body goes into the sea, the chances of recovering it are very slim. But even if we move out, outside of Galway City, if we go to the kind of Gort area and Shanaglish down near the, um, That's right. the Clare and, uh, and Galway border, you've the famous case or the infamous case of the Lochnan brothers there. Yeah. And that's um, Patrick and Henry Lochnan, who would have been two active IRA volunteers, very active locally as well in, in, in the GAA, in Irish language circles and in the Sinn Féin party of that time. And what happened then was particularly horrific. Um, probably one of the worst killings of the, the War of Independence period. They are, um, they're abducted, um, they're, there's a, a harvest or a threshing going on, they're abducted from their, their family farm. We often think of English RIC, or English, you know, black and tans being responsible for this, but they didn't know who was who. And in the case of the Lochnam brothers, it was actually RIC constables, Irish men, Irish mm -hmm. Catholics stationed locally who picked them out and said, they're the two boys we want. And the official British version, again, like the, the Father Griffin thing, there's a cover-up. The official British version is that um, these men were arrested, they were taken into custody, they were held in a, a castle that was being, um, you know, used as a barracks by the, the auxiliaries, and they disappeared. The guy who was guarding them heard mysterious sounds outside, he left them unattended, and they just disappeared and they were never seen again. And, I mean, these guys were all battle-hardened, veterans of the First World Absolutely. War. They were armed with rifles, machine guns, the Lachnans would have been in handcuffs, and nothing more is heard of them until their bodies are found um, a, uh, their bodies are found about a week later, and they're found in a, a small pond um, 
way out in an isolated area wow. and the condition of the bodies is horrific. And I don't want to put anyone off who might be having a late breakfast, but if you if you Google the images, you'll see what I'm on about. Um, they attempted, this happened in November, and they attempted to hide the bodies by, by digging, and they couldn't because the ground was frozen. It was too cold. So the next thing they tried to do was to, to set their bodies on fire. And that didn't work either because it takes a huge amount of fuel to, to destroy a, a body in a, a cremation. So then they used um, hand grenades to try and destroy the bodies as well. So they were in horrific condition. And even sure. before that, um, when the bodies were recovered, a number of the fingers had been chopped off. And this was something, it, it, it's a very grim thing called a, a, a war trophy. This is something American troops did in Vietnam when they killed Viet Cong, that they saw them as, racially inferior and they chop off fingers and ears as souvenirs. This, this appears to have been done to the lot yeah. now. Where, where can they get further details on the disappeared, uh, forced disappearances in Ireland 1798 to 1998? I know it's been launched this week. but uh, Well, it's yeah, it's been launched this week in, um, in Dublin and actually the guy who's launching it is Jeff Nuffler, who's the former lead investigator with the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims Remains. Basically, he's the guy who dug up most of the bodies that were found in the north. And the reason why he got that job is he's a Manchester policeman. And and decades earlier, he actually found some of the Moores murders um, victims. So the the main launch is in Dublin, but um, any um, bookshop in in Galway, you know, be it Charlie Burns, be it Kenny's, support your local bookshop. Go out uh, this week and get yourself a copy. Listen, it's fascinating, and you brought back so many childhood memories. And I'm 62, so <laughs> you're going back a bit. So you are for me. Sorry, uh, guys. Thank you indeed for joining us. It's called the Disappeared Forced Disappearances in Ireland, 1798 to 1998, being launched this week. It's fascinating. It really is fascinating. Um, what are we doing? A ah, quick commercial break, and we're back. And uh, today is International Epilepsy Day. Stay tuned. <laughs> Now, earlier on the programme, we were talking to Lorraine Lally about an event at the Galmont Hotel, which is um, going ahead uh, today, and we wish them the best of luck on that. But she mentioned that uh, today is International Epilepsy Day 2024. Uh, Penny McGagan, who's the Advocacy and Communications Manager with Epilepsy Ireland, joins me on the line. And Rachel Langan uh, from Galway is one of the two recipients of their Volunteer of the Year Award for 2023. Uh, but Paddy joins me on the line for us. Paddy, morning to you. Good morning, Keith. How are you? Good to talk to you on, on Epilepsy Day. Good to talk to you again. Um, but again, I mean, there's quite a few people affected by epilepsy. Yeah, listen, the, the, the numbers, whenever we mention them, always seem to surprise people. Um, over 45,000 people living with epilepsy in Ireland. And to put that to a Galway context, we'd estimate in around 3,000 people living with epilepsy. So our message is epilepsy is much closer to home than what you might think and that's why it's so important to be aware of it and know our kind of key message around seizure first aid which is um, time safe and stay and again I mean people can live uh, long and fruitful lives, uh, lives with epilepsy of course, yeah. It's it's very much a journey, not to downplay the, the impact of the condition, but it's very much a journey and it's a very much an individual condition. Um, people, as they progress through their life, can can face challenges as a result of epilepsy, but equally, as you say, they can they can live full and happy lives as well. And I suppose that's what we're there, we're there for, to help provide people support and information um, on their journeys with epilepsy. But a key part of that is the public learning more about the condition, uh, understanding it and sorting the effects the myths from the facts as well. Um, so that's why days like today are very, very important um, to, to learn more 
and understand the condition and to have people like Rachel who's on with you there to, to share their lived experience of epilepsy. Um, Rachel uh, does see it absolutely. Rachel, morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, today. Um, again, your congratulations first on Rachel Langan. Um, you're one of two recipients of the Volunteer of the Year Award. That was a big surprise for you. Massive surprise. Paddy sent me an email going, congrats, you've been nominated. And then he rang me going, you, we've chosen you. It was a big shock. <laughs> uh, and Paddy, why was she chosen? Yeah, listen, Rachel was was chosen because she absolutely deserved it, number one. But um, last year, um, there was a major breakthrough in terms of one of our long-standing advocacy campaigns, which was to establish a deferred setting of leaving cert exams for students with epilepsy who may experience a seizure during their exams uh, that prevents them from finishing it. Now, historically, um, what happened in that situation was that students had to had to wait a year until resetting the exam, which was awful for people. Um, now, where Rachel comes into this is that she unfortunately experienced a seizure during her exam in 2022 um, and was kind of impacted by the fact that she couldn't reset it. Rachel realised that it was wrong and knew that we were campaigning on it um, and very, very bravely um, started speaking out about her, her individual experience. Um, spoke to the Irish Times, spoke to RT drive time, you know, to get the message out there. And it very much was was a catalyst to finally getting that campaign over the line. So what Rachel did has has potentially, you know, improved the lives of future mm. generations of people of epilepsy, young people of epilepsy. So like kids sitting the exam this year do not have that worry um, that Rachel had and will not hopefully have that experience that Rachel had. Okay. Um, it has made accommodations for people now in the future. So I think that shows in itself why why Rachel was, was named our Volunteer of the Year for, for last year. And what were you, um, what exam were you sitting as a student? My Leaving Cert History exam. So I've, it was really important to me. History has been my favourite subject since I was in, since I was tiny. And I've gone on to study, uh, I'm currently doing a Bachelor of Arts in History and Archaeology. Good on you. Well, I, love, I love history as well, I do. There's something about it. It's a fascinating subject and I think that there needs to be more focus put on uh, learning from the past so we can not make the same mistakes in the future. And, um, do you, and do your friends understand epilepsy? Do they understand that you're, you're just a normal person? Yes, they've been amazing. Um, my One of my closest friends, Sandra, she was the first person that I told outside of my family and she went, not to worry, I'm going to research everything. So she researched everything. She was like, I know, like, I know this is a great website, Epilepsy Ireland, have a look at it. And she is currently studying medicine, but she's just been so incredibly supportive. They all have been. Isn't it great to have a friend like that? Because mom and dad and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and far-flung relations can tell you everything and anything but when you have a friend like that in your corner um, yeah, it's it was, great it was amazing she was just she's been so supportive the whole time yeah and are you proud of what you've done by getting the 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 reset of the exams uh following your 2022 episode um but i i shouldn't call them episodes but I, yeah i call them episodes sorry because yeah. uh, we have it in our own family but are you proud then of what you've done that others don't have to worry if something happens i am but it was when I did it, it was thinking about other people in the school and their worries and their fears of what if this happens to me. Yeah, which uh, is a big what. Yes, a massive what if and yeah. a very much um, a scare. Yeah. 
and this like hovering over you what if this happens what if like what am I going to do and like some people are so and Patty your, your mic is open there's a some people are so stupid like you don't bring it on yourself this happens yes and uh, I call them episodes I don't know why I call them episodes but episodes happen when episodes happen it's not your fault no and I think that's massively misunderstood um, when the SEC was contacted by the invigilator of my exam, they were kind of like, oh, well, this is kind of her fault, was the impression that we were getting in the school, in the exam. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, we can't do anything. It's like, she has a condition. Get over it, kind of a... I, I, I would have got, I'd have lost the plot altogether. Oh, well... I, I know I, you wouldn't because you're too much of a lady to do that. That's why you got the volunteer... Of the year award, but Patty, there, there you have there you have the the education process for the public is something that really needs to be stepped up, maybe more. Yeah, certainly, and I suppose um, like it's, it's it's why we have days like International Epilepsy Day. It's why we have we have Rachel on talking about her lived experience because you know it it helps you know it's it's so much power, more powerful hearing from people who have the direct experience. But, you know, what we would say as well is that it literally only takes five minutes today to go onto our website to learn more about, about you know, practical information such as seizure first aid, you know, and the time safe stay message and just general information about epilepsy. As I say, it's it's incredibly common condition. Uh, what people don't realize as well is, is the fact you can be diagnosed uh, with epilepsy at any stage of life. So... It is information that you need to know, um, and it's very, very important given the sheer numbers of people who are living with epilepsy. Rachel, when were you diagnosed, can I ask you? I was diagnosed uh, in early July of 2021. I was 17, coming back from family holiday down in Kerry, and I had a seizure in the car, and I was brought to Limerick Hospital where they went, oh, she's after having a stroke. Wow. Yeah. So. Frightening on your family. Terrifying. Um it terrified my two siblings, my two younger siblings and my mother. And uh, I was in hospital for f- uh, four nights in Limerick. And had you nothing up to that? Nothing before, nothing at all. Wow, wow. So 2021 was a changing time for you. It really was. I was yeah. going into leave and search and we thought, okay, maybe this is a one-off. We didn't know exactly what had happened. Um, so then in September... Late September, I had another seizure and I had to be brought to Galway University Hospital by ambulance. And I was in there for a few days and they had seizures in there, but they didn't know. They were very unwilling to diagnose it as epilepsy. And then um, early October, I had another episode and had to be brought again to University Hospital Galway where um, they went, okay, yeah, it's an official diagnosis of epilepsy. Wow. So then you, you were put on, are you on medication, Lamictal now? Yeah, Lamictal and Kepra. Yeah, so you're on the two of them, so you yes. are. Yeah. And is it, is it keeping them at bay? It is, it's finally kind of started to kick in. So I've gone the longest without a seizure. It's coming up on three months now. Good. So it's looking, looking optimistic, but keeping in mind that, that it could, another episode could happen. So another three months and you could be driving. No, it has to be a year first. <laughs> a year, I know, yeah, six months. Yeah. Is it 12 months, sorry, yeah. <laughs> 12 months uh, for that. It, 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 she really, Patty, she really is an, ex, an inspiring person that she should be pushing out further. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and something else we haven't mentioned is that, uh, Rachel, we had the International Epilepsy Congress at... Um, 
in Dublin last year. Huge, huge international event, over 4,000 medical professionals, but we also um, had a public-facing aspect to the Congress and we had a youth summit for for young advocates with epilepsy from all across the globe. Rachel was one of, of eight Irish delegates there. Um, and yeah, Rachel's just getting started in, in this, this world of advocacy and awareness. Um, whether she knows it or not, um, I'm going to be on to her about different bits and pieces. And um, yeah, she's an incredible supporter and advocate for epilepsy awareness. And the more people like her, obviously, the, the more education, the more awareness we have of the condition, the, the, the more it becomes destigmatized and almost normalized. Um, which is, you know, so, so important. Absolutely. I think the most important thing is go. Your, your, if they go to your website then, uh, Epilepsy Ireland, they can get for the full details uh, there. But I think people need to educate themselves. I think educators need to educate themselves. I think um, those that uh, invigilate at some of these exams need to educate themselves as well. Uh, but uh, Paddy, thanks for joining us. But further details can be had okay. from Epilepsy Ireland. Keith, can I just say before we end, um, yeah. it might potentially be the, the last time in chatting you before, before you finish up, um, just to say thanks a million for giving us a platform, platform over the years. It's, it's um, been fantastic. So um, all the best for the future. You'd listen, we have between now and the 12th of April. We, we, we'll have a cup on taste, so we will. Don't worry about yeah. it. Uh, Paddy McGigan, thanks <laughs> for joining us. Rachel, will you keep doing what you're doing? Absolutely. And you, you, you carry the flame for epilepsy for young people. Uh, you're an inspiration, so thank you for being you. Thank thanks you. For, thanks for popping into us uh, today. My pleasure. And uh, again, that's uh, Rachel Langan from Galway, one of the two recipients of the Volunteer of the Year Award for 2023. Now, I'm going to head towards news, so I am, but after news, we're going to be come back and we're going to Galway Greats uh, today on the programme. And the Galway Greats that we're looking at on today's programme is uh, the wonderful, indeed, Sister Agnes Curley. Uh, spent a lot of time in Clifton, was born in Roscommon, Clifton. It's a lovely, lovely story. So I suggest now you boil the kettle, you get a biscuit or whatever you want to eat yourself and you sit down and just after the um, news and death notices, I'm going to go to Sister Agnes Curley, one of Galway's greats. She certainly is. And her story and the music she picks is quite compelling. So stay tuned for that and much more to come between now and 12 midday. Let's head to news and death notices.